Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. You know, Marco Polo was something of a medieval rock star when he traveled from Europe to China on the Silk Road. Even though, if you look at his stuff, he was pretty dismissive of people and places along the way. And Kate Harris didn't think this was right, so she retraced his 10,000-kilometer route by bike. It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today I talk to Kate Harris, writer, scientist, and extreme cyclist, at least I would call her an extreme cyclist, about the trip she made with her friend Mel tracing Marco Polo's route across Central Asia and Tibet. This journey is the subject of Harris's new book, Lands of Lost Borders, Journey on the Silk Road, newly released from Knopf in Canada, where it is already, by the way, a top 10 book for 2018. Kate Harris, thank you for talking with me today. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. So could you talk about your first trip to Asia in 2006? Tell us a little bit about where you were in life and and, uh, why you decided to, to go and where you went. Sure, yeah. So in, in 2006, um, I had just graduated from university. Um, and my friend and I, my friend Melissa, who's a, a big character in my book, decided uh, we would bike the Silk Road. We had four months of summer holiday available to us. And I had managed to get this summer travel grant through my university that would enable enable this kind of trip. And I basically pitched it as as following in the footsteps of Marco Polo. And what I didn't elaborate to the travel grant committee, but um, my underlying motivation for this journey was I was really, Marco Polo is a fallen hero to me at that point. You know, I grew up mm-hmm. kind of admiring his travels and, and really worshiping him from a, a kid's perspective. Like he just seemed this glamorous, romantic explorer figure than um, at least from the you know children's books I read about him. Mm-hmm. But when I was at university, I read the the fuller edition of his travels, the unabridged edition, and was kind of heartbroken to find out he was more of a merchant than a um, a romantic, I guess. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we wanted to set off and bike through some of the places he most detested along the Silk Road, which were the places that interested me the most. You know, the mountains uh-huh. and deserts, everything in between the really fabled trading hubs. So that was the motivation for our, our trip. And um, we'd done one previous bike trip together. And I explained this in the book, but it was kind of a fluke, the order in which it happened. Um, we biked across the U.S. because Mel got hit by a boat when we were supposed to leave for China for our Silk Road bike ride. 
Um, uh-huh. So we had to postpone the Silk Road trip, but we biked across the U.S., which was a really good warm up because it meant we actually knew how to fix a flat tire by the time we the real <laughs> Silk Road. Right. And you uh, and it was on that first trip that you entered Tibet and saw the how do you pronounce this the Sichuan glacier. Yeah, um, I've I always pronounce it as Siachen, and then I heard an, an Indian person pronounce it, and they said Siachen. So mm-hmm. I, um, I'm probably doing it wrong, but I, I've always in my head read it as Siachen, but I think it's Siachen. That becomes a an important place for you and how you think about the the next the upcoming trip after that. That's right. Yeah. So we biked, we snuck into Tibet in 2006, um, like literally snuck under a guardrail railing in the cover of night and it all turned out to be quite unnecessary our stealth tactics were not called for at that point but um we we managed to get in to tibet and in the process we biked through this borderland area called the Aksai chin and this is um up against india and it's contested territory even today with india although china is in sort of de facto control of it and the road we were biking on through this remote, far-flung corner of um, Western Tibet was the road that provoked a war between, a brief war between India and China over this territory. And so Mm -hmm. I didn't know much of this background during the trip. I mean, I saw a lot of military convoys when we were out there, and it was very clearly not not your usual tourist track, I guess. But it, when I came back from that trip, I had the chance to study the history of science at Oxford. And mm-hmm. I started looking into that corner of Tibet. And in looking into it, I learned it was such a contested borderland. And in the process, noticed that just across the border into um, India and, and Pakistan was this other highly contested borderland that is this glacier, the Siachen Glacier. So that that's what sparked the, the intrigue. So this was interesting to me when I read it because uh, you talk in your book about how how important, really almost fundamental to who you are, this idea of, of travel and new experiences. And yet at the same time, you've got this um, these kind of stated goals for these expeditions, one to kind of retrace Marco Polo's journey, this other to look at borders and uh, their effect on... Um, on, you know, influencing wildlife. And uh, you have actually a really cool quote, if I can find it here. Uh, I wanted to bike the Silk Road as a practical extension of my thesis at Oxford to study how borders make and break what is wild in the world. That's a beautiful line. Thank you. So what do you think the the chicken and the egg here is? Uh, is it that you really wanted to go to uh, to Asia and, and bike the Silk Road and then kind of found a, a motive to do it? Or was it the motive that drove drove the expedition and the kind of experiences that you have kind of are the watershed of that? Right. That's a great question. I, th- I think because I, you know, I traveled first in the world vicariously, you know, it was through words. It was through reading books as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, that I really felt this thirst to see the world myself, um, reading about other people's journeys in it, especially their their wild journeys. Um, so I, I guess probably the reading 
sparked the idea to go myself and also kind of the sort of questions I wanted to explore in the travels. Um, but certainly a mix of both. I mean, if I, ha- if we hadn't snuck into Tibet on that first trip and, and traveled through this, this weird borderland that, you know, borders that exist to some people and not to others and country of like conflicting claims. Um, I don't know that I would have gone off to grad school after that and really honed in on, on borderlands as what I wanted. Yeah. So definitely they feed each other like words in the world sort of this yeah. back and forth. I, I feel oftentimes with projects, um, I probably shouldn't announce this publicly, should I? But <laughs> like, uh, I, I become very interested in something because it's interesting. And then I reverse engineer a reason why I should do it <laughs> right. uh, or, or study it. And um, yeah. so I was just curious about it. But yeah, but I can see how the two uh, feed each other in, in your text. And, and in fact, you do really give us some interesting pictures of these of these borderlands and there's a kind of paradox to them uh, the way that you talk about them as 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 these structures that keep people out but in some cases actually kind of protect and maintain natural areas could you talk about that yeah yeah so you know i think a quality of being young and you know a lot of this book is is you know is in my 20s when i was doing these trips um, you know, you, you sort of have these black and white, very idealistic notions about how the world works or should work. Um, and in reading so much about borders and borderlands and all their negative impacts and constricting effects on people and places and wildlife, um, I kind of set off on the Silk Road with a bit of a vendetta against, against borders. <laughs> um, and there's nothing like travel to really force you to reconsider your, your, your black and white, you know, and see the gray in between. And, and along the way, we visit a whole bunch of different borderlands and, and saw a few examples where borders are perversely protecting landscapes and, and wildlife in a way that, um, if those, you know, barbed wire fences didn't exist, um, these places would be impoverished in a biodiversity sense, which is not to downplay Mm -hmm. the like horrible, impacts on on people's lives that these borders can have but you know one example of this was the border between Turkey and Armenia and it's this canyon um, it's running through the canyon is the river um, formerly known as the Araxes to the the Greeks I guess um, and mm-hmm. this canyon used to be you know, you can look down into it and see the ruins of bridges. Like as as recently as a century ago, people could just walk across this river and and move freely between what is now um, eastern Turkey and western Armenia. And then this this border was thrown down, and it's been banned to human entry for um, decades now. And in that that interim, this canyon. Um, became the sort of inadvertent wildlife sanctuary, and Egyptian vultures which are an endangered wow. threatened species are, are nesting in this canyon because people can't go there so that it's a refuge. Um, and the, the DMZ between North and South Korea is an, another example of this, um, which I'd, I'd read about, you know, I'd studied it on, on paper when I was um, a grad mm-hmm. student at Oxford, but, but actually seeing this play out in front of your, your eyes is, is another thing entirely. Yeah. 
So what I really um, like about your book, and it's it's a it's a really interesting mixture of your different interests in exploration. I mean, in a sense, I think you wear a lot of different hats. Um, you're a student of exploration. You know, you studied that at Oxford. Then you went to work at MIT uh, for your PhD studies. Is that yeah. correct? And, and, and was that in astrobiology? It, that was my interest. Technically, the program was uh, geobiology. Geobiology. Yeah. And then at, and at the same time, and I know this from when I first met you about eight years, must have been eight yeah. years ago, and you said, oh, I just read this Annie Dillard piece, and you have to read it. Uh, and I think it was on the North Pole. Yes, Expedition to the Pole. That's yeah. right. And so I, I know that you're also very much a student of, of, uh, of literature and travel literature. And I was just wondering how you, I don't know, how do you find your voice in all that when you're in two ways, I guess. One, when you're traveling, what's the voice that's going through your head? Um, and two, how do you end up writing about it? Um, and I'll just, and I'll make this question even longer <laughs> by, by, by saying that um, when I travel, this is always a question for me because I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be present in the moment, and you know, simultaneously, I'm thinking about it like a, you know, as like a writer. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was interesting. This was the first, the sort of long bike ride on the Silk Road was the first trip I set off on explicitly planning to write about it. Um, in part because I'd quit my PhD at MIT and had no future other than what <laughs> I, if and when I could could actually turn writing into a not a career exactly, but something that would keep me going. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I kept elaborate notes during the trip and at first I was really really diligent about writing down you know every detail the day in and day out of what we were seeing and doing mm -hmm. um and then I I sort of realized along the way that it was an exhausting amount of detail and you can't I didn't want to write a trip that was about the day-to-day -day. like I wanted to weave right. in bigger ideas about exploration historically and and you know what it means in the modern world that's far more mapped and tamed. Um, and I wanted to weave in literature, uh, sort of all my, my different obsessions in life that, that make the world interesting to me. And so I knew, you know, it wasn't going to be like day one, we biked here, we ate this. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I started yeah. being a little more, you could call it lazy on one hand or um, practical on the other. And just sort of jotting down like what, what moments really were, what, what came alive to me on the Silk Road, you know, what, yeah. what sort of images and, and metaphors, what, what, and what I was reading as I biked the Silk Road caught my attention. Cause we you have a wonderful amount of time to read on a bike trip because you can only bike so many hours of a day. And so I tried to keep notes that were, they were much more fragmentary, much more evocative, you know, how the light looked in these trees and yeah. you know, what, what, the birds were doing and what I was hearing. Um, and so, yeah, I came back and I still had a, an enormous amount of material to try and work up into the book. Um, but in the end, it was those sort of glimmerings along the road that, that brought the writing alive. And the writing was just a process of eliminating, 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 yeah, paring <laughs> down to, you know, what specific scenes and what specific moments and encounters and, and musings in your mind 
bring the, the trip alive to someone else who wasn't actually on it, but who wants to go on that, that emotional and intellectual journey. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, I wonder, since you're talking about your writing, if you wouldn't mind uh, reading a passage for, for us, it's, um, it's from your journey through Georgia, I believe. Yes. Do you mind uh, reading an ex- excerpt from that? You bet. And actually, probably you, if you could set up the scene. Yeah, for us. sure. So we're in Georgia, um, right on the border of, of uh, Azerbaijan and Russia, in this national park called Lagodeki. And we've been there for a few days and nothing really makes any sense to us. We, you know, there's a language barrier. There's just a lot that is really hard to read between the lines of when you're a foreigner in a, a foreign land. So we've been trying to talk to as many people as we can in this, in this park to figure out, like, how does it work with conservation across borders? How do people, how do people exist here? Um, Mm-hmm. So the passage goes as follows. So what do you people do here for a living? I'd asked. I'm not sure, he'd confessed with the helpless, homesick look. This was a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it was the clearest answer we'd heard yet. It was certainly the most honest response he could have given. For other than exposing the obvious differences between a foreign land and wherever you're from, the way the Polish explorer noticed a peony growing in Georgia and nowhere else, Travel reveals less about the truth of a place and hints more at how complicated the world is, how reeling and inscrutable. Thank you uh, for reading that. I think uh, one reason I really like that passage is I think it kind of digs at a, a, dile- a dilemma of exploration or a dilemma of travel between uh, going deep and going broad. Um, you know, are you going to learn a place by living in a place for a number of years, yeah. or are you going to try to learn by by traveling through? And here, it feels to me like you're kind of acknowledging that uh, that there's a kind of ignorance about travel too. Yeah, because you're moving through things, landscapes, and and seeing people so quickly. So, so how do you? I don't know. How do you process that? Yeah, this is something I thought about so much on the trip because you really you know you're just skimming the surface and. Um, you know, it takes a certain arrogance in a way, which I hope I've not indulged in too much. But but to write about places where you're you're a stranger, you don't know really how how things work or who people are. You have these sort of glancing impressions, um, and it's it's what makes travel incredibly exciting because it's all new, it's all unknown. But it it also makes it frustrating because you you know you're just just kind of not getting to the depths that you would get to if you could actually talk to people in their own language or spend longer, longer periods in a place. And I'll always love this kind of travel. You know, there's just kind of mm-hmm. whizzing through a place. If whizzing is a word that can apply to bicycle travel, but, <laughs> uh, um, but I, I'm definitely more drawn now to, to lingering and, and getting to know the neighborhood on a deeper level. It's partly what I love about my day-to-day life um, in Canada's North. You know, I live in this tiny cabin in, in a tiny community and all around us is, is wilderness mountains and forests and wildlife and an ice field. And there's such joy in sort of 
the, the deeper kind of travel you can do in a place that you, you're not the thing moving, the world is moving around you and it's noticing uh-huh. those changes and those um, differences from, from day to day and season to season. That's another kind of travel and one I'm increasingly addicted to. Uh, and I think, yeah, I definitely want to keep a mix in my life, but you can get different things from each sort of version of quote exploration. Yeah, I I sometimes think of um, exploration as being on this continuum. People are heading out into the world uh, to figure out the world, and then people heading out into the world to figure out themselves. Right. And uh, I think you know probably if you look at uh, at most expeditions or or even just travel experiences, they're some somewhere on that continuum, and. It, reading your book, it's very interesting because it seems like there are these these moments of exhilaration are most attached to you understanding yourself or living in that moment or seeing something kind of anew, as you said in this, uh, what is exploration, but, but seeing the world um, anew. And yet this life that you're telling me about now is a kind of different, different life or, uh, it, you know, you're, you're, you're in one place. There was another line that I really liked. You were uh, quoting Joan Didion, who said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. And uh, so I was just wondering, has that story changed for yeah. you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think if it weren't changing or if it's, you know, if it, if it became one story that I'm sticking with the rest of my life, I'd be pretty sad. Uh, part of the joy of, of life is, is following the different stories your life becomes and um you know the, the story i needed to live when i was a kid was that i i could become an astronaut and go to mars because that was the last frontier left that that a human being could conceivably mm-hmm. kind of walk around on and plant a flag you know for someone as i was who wanted to be an explorer in, in a pretty historic understanding of the word um that's that was a story i needed because i looked around at the world and it looked awfully paved over and, and fenced and full of subdivisions from what I could see in the small town where I grew up. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, as I got older, you know, that, that, that story has definitely changed. You know, you, you sort of, at least I have, I, I just fall deeper and deeper into love with this planet, however sort of flawed and, and compromised it might be. Um, I, I really feel like my loyalties are, are here and there's so much to explore you know it's a it's a really Uh um naive read on on novelty to think that you have to be the very first person to do something or see something or feel something for that feeling or or sight or experience to be worthwhile like that's absurd and Mm -hmm. you know i write in the book about how like the most powerful experiences available to us as human beings alive for this brief period of time on this planet in the middle of nowhere in a vast universe um you know they're not amenable to to maps like no one no one else can explore for you um just because someone's been to the peak of everest before doesn't mean you climbing up there isn't one of the most powerful experiences you can you can have in your lifetime um and maybe not Everest. It's a bit too crowded. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, 
Yeah, I, I'm really convinced that that exploration is not something that that like an elite few do in remote places that are hard to get to. Um, it's really an attitude you can apply to your your daily life, um, just bringing a sense of wonder to the world around you. So that's, I guess, that's my story now. We'll see what it is in a decade. Yeah, it, well, it's interesting to see how the young, your your younger self, you know, gets annoyed at uh, Charles Darwin and. Uh, Marco Polo for for kind of lacking the the sufficient wonder in the the coolness of the world uh, and uh, and it's also kind of neat that I think as a as a younger person you were interested in kind of re- doing a redo <laughs> of uh, of Polo's journey it, it reminded me a little bit just in in let's say in um, approach to you know Alexander von Humboldt oh yeah. He, uh, when he was traveling to the new world, you know, he wasn't really going anywhere that hadn't been either known by Native Americans for thousands of years or by Europeans for hundreds right. of years. And yet, uh, in a sense, he was rediscovering it or creating a new vision of it, which was really, you know, neither like the old European version or or the indigenous version. It was this this new creation. So I think that's kind of a cool you know, way to yeah. look at it. Yeah. Um, like traveling into old lands with new questions like that, that is yeah. as close to exploration as, as one could hope to get. So what do you see uh, as your next project? What, what are you looking at? Well, I, my latest sort of love affair is with the, the sky. Um, I'm learning how to fly. That's always been a dream of mine. You know, since I, I, looked up at, at the stars and wanted to be an astronaut, um, flight was a, a big part of that. You know, I looked at what astronauts did even when they were back on earth and it was, well, they got to fly planes and, you know, scuba dive and go on survival, wilderness survival courses in Siberia. And, um, so in a way I, I think I'm trying to piece together a life that, that is, has those elements, um, and yeah. flight is definitely a theme that, that runs through the book, you know, the relationship between bicycles and early airplanes and then early airplanes and missions to the moon. Um, and yeah, I've, I've never really had the, the, the time or, or space to, to get my private pilot's license, but that's what I'm, I'm working on now. And I love it. I love it. Like there's the feeling of, lifting off from the earth hmm. and you know it's it's not under your own power exactly but you're you're at the controls and you're suddenly moving in with six degrees of freedom over a world that you you've never seen this way before despite a million transatlantic commercial flights and um yeah i, I just mm-hmm. love it and it's challenging in a sort of technical way which which appeals to the scientific side of me and you know, i love i just love learning new systems and and theories mm-hmm. um and then the the sort of part of me that just likes adventure and seeing things from a different point of view um it's it's thrilling for that too especially flying in the canadian north or in mountain around mountains and yeah. lakes and ice fields um so i don't really know where that's going you know I've, I've never i've never had much of a plan beyond sort of what i can see on the horizon other than sort of themes that I, I think mm-hmm. will be consistent through my life, which, I, you know, wandering, wondering about things and, and writing about them. 
So I'm sure it'll, it'll show yeah. up in my writing somehow. Um, and then the other adventure is just living off the grid in sort of a little spaceship of a cabin where you, you know, you have to make mm-hmm. sure you have enough energy coming in and um, you have water to, to manage and all the life support systems that <laughs> are kind of, we take advantage of or take for granted in, in more uh, sophisticated <laughs> buildings and places. So I'm, I'm just loving being a homesteader. You that uh that sounded very much like a uh, Martian like statement <laughs> yeah. to uh, be self sufficient and know the amount of energy coming in is the amount. Yeah, leader. it's great. Well, uh, Kate Harris, thanks so much for uh, talking with me. Oh, today. it was my great pleasure, Michael. Thank you. That's it for today. Next week, I talk to Jane Hooper about trade and travel on the Indian Ocean in the 1600s, which is the subject of her new book, Feeding Globalization. The music for Time to Eat the Dogs was composed by Zabrat. If you'd like to recommend a guest or offer an opinion, feel free to email me at timetoeatthedogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. And please rate the show and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It's really one of the best ways of reaching new listeners who might be interested in the show. See you next week.